When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and I'm thrilled to have you back for another week of Book of Mormon study. Today we'll be studying Alma chapter 32 through 35. Now this may have been a week since we've studied last time, but don't lose sight of where we were last week. Alma 30 with Korahor, the ultimate Book of Mormon Antichrist, and Alma 31 with these apostate Zoramites who had descended from the Nephites, built their Ramiumtum, climbed their holy stand so that they could pray to God about themselves. It reminds me of the parable Jesus told of the publican and the Pharisee, both of whom were praying. And the Pharisee was praying to be seen of men. In fact, I love the phrase Jesus uses, that as he prayed with himself, like the Ramiumtum prayer, it really did seem more focused on self than trying to connect with God, as opposed to the publican, a person who Jesus' hearers would have naturally looked down upon, and yet in a good way, that publican looked down upon himself in true humility, meekness before God. Well, in Alma 31, we got to see the Pharisee praying. In Alma 32, we'll meet the publican. The humble, the lowly, the poor, who have a sincere desire to connect with God. But I really want us to focus on what these people are up against. What Alma and his companions are up against. Because it wasn't just the pride of those who were praying on the Ramiumtum. Remember what they said God had revealed to them? That there would be no Christ. That's what connects Alma 30 with Korahor with the Zoramites in 31. This antipathy against Christ. Not just lack of faith in him, but more of an open defiance. Now to set that stage, let me share this statement from President Harold B. Lee. And I'll confess, the first time I heard this statement, I didn't believe it. He was speaking in 1971 to a group of young adult Latter-day Saints. The rising generation in colleges across the nation being bombarded with the philosophies of men. Some of which would have been pretty similar to the kinds of things the Korahor was teaching. This is what he said. Fifty years ago or more, when I was a missionary, our greatest responsibility was to defend the great truth that the prophet Joseph Smith was divinely called and inspired, and that the Book of Mormon was indeed the Word of God. But even at that time, there were the unmistakable evidences that there was coming into the religious world, actually, a question about the Bible and the divine calling of the Master himself. Now, fifty years later, our greatest responsibility and anxiety is to defend the divine mission of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. For all about us, even among those who claim to be professors of the Christian faith, are those not willing to stand squarely in defense of the great truth that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God. So tonight, he told these young adults, it would seem to me that the most important thing I could say to you is to try to strengthen your faith and increase your courage and your understanding of the place of the Master in the great plan of salvation. Like I said, when I first heard that statement from President Lee, I didn't believe it. People not believing in Jesus that will have to defend him? What are you talking about? Everybody believes in Jesus. At least that had been my assumption. 
I thought I was still living in a world that reflected President Lee's first statement. We're here to defend Joseph Smith and the Restoration. No need to defend Jesus. But as I've gotten older, I can now see that President Lee was right. We talked about this a little last week, the difference between the historical Jesus versus the Christ of faith, and our need to defend the Christ of faith, that he really is the living Son of Almighty God, that he really did atone for our sins, take upon him death, and then rise from the grave, that he lives and continues to minister to all of God's children through his infinite grace, and that he continues to lead his church upon the earth. That is one of the great purposes of the restoration of the gospel. I've always been haunted by the question Jesus asks in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? There is vulnerability in that question. When I return, will people even care? Will they believe? Will they have faith in me? One of the great purposes of the restoration is to make sure that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. That's why the Book of Mormon is so saturated in the message of Jesus, to confirm the Bible's message that Jesus is the Christ. Far more important than giving secondary evidence that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, the Book of Mormon is meant to give primary evidence that Jesus is the Christ, to convince the Jew and Gentile, all people, of the Savior's mission. In fact, one of the most fascinating books, in my opinion, to ever accuse Joseph Smith of being a fraud rather than a prophet was written 40 years ago by a man who claimed that Joseph Smith had just written the Book of Mormon himself. Forget translation by the gift and power of God. No golden plates, no angel Moroni, none of that. Just coming out of Joseph Smith's own mind. Now that's a pretty natural explanation for a lot of people who simply dismiss Joseph Smith's claims to have translated the Book of Mormon. But this particular author it's fascinating what he was saying as far as why Joseph Smith would do this. He actually took the time to read enough of the Book of Mormon to realize this really is a religious message. I can't accept Joseph's prophetic claims, but he must have been a religious person. He doesn't seem to be doing this with ill intent. In fact, the exact opposite seems to be true. So this man's guess was maybe Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon to actually build faith in Jesus Christ some kind of a pious fraud, as it's sometimes called. In fact, the title of his book was Mormon Answer to Skepticism, Why Joseph Smith Wrote the Book of Mormon. It since has been republished with a different title. But think about that. Mormon Answer to Skepticism. That Joseph was writing, making up this story. Why? Because people in his time period were losing faith in Jesus and the Bible, just like people are in our own. And that the Book of Mormon was Joseph's answer to that. Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph's mom, actually shares a fascinating detail in her history that even before her son Joseph was born, her husband, Joseph Smith Sr., had avoided organized religion. At one point, he was leaning towards the Methodists, like his son Joseph later would as well. And his father, who had a copy of Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, some might argue the most scathing attack against the Bible, against revealed religion, against Christianity itself that's ever been written, at least the most popular one ever written to a general audience, that book was spreading like wildfire in the late 1790s and early 1800s. And at one point, Joseph Smith's grandpa takes a copy of the Age of Reason and literally throws it at his son through the open doorway of his house, challenging him to read it and to avoid the Methodists and all organized religion for that matter. 
So in spite of the staunch belief and piety of Joseph Smith's mother, there was a skeptical strand that came into the family through grandpa and dad. Not skeptical of God, but skeptical of revealed religion and the claims to divinity that the Bible attaches to Jesus Christ. If that's the case in Joseph's own family and his surroundings, American culture at the time, then no wonder Joseph Smith would want to combat that, this author said, by writing a book that is so focused on Jesus Christ. The irony of that, I mean, I've read a lot of anti-Mormonism, but nothing quite like that one. Because on the one hand, I agree with him. The Book of Mormon really is the ultimate response to skepticism. He was right in that. What I disagree with is to think that Joseph Smith wrote it as a response. My firm belief is not that this was Joseph's response to skepticism, but it was the Lord's response to skepticism. And he empowered a young Joseph Smith to translate this book by the gift and power of God in order to defend the divinity of his son. So whether it's Jacob versus Sherem, or Abinadi versus King Noah and Amulon, Amulek versus Zeezrom, Alma versus Korahor, or as we'll see today, Alma and his companions versus the apostate Zoramites, the message has always been that Jesus is the Son of God, that he atoned for our sins, that he conquered both sin and death and rose again, and is still eager and active in ministering to our every need, lifting us homeward and heavenward. We'll see that message today. In fact, seeing a little bit of the end from the beginning, in Alma 34, the way Amulek begins his turn, he says in verse 5, We have beheld that the great question which is in your minds is whether the word be in the Son of God or whether there shall be no Christ. Of course that's the great question on their mind. Every Sabbath, they've been packing the synagogue to see people climb the holy stand and say that God has revealed that there is no Christ. Of course, that's the question on their minds. But there is a great answer to that great question. And both Alma and Amulek will help us discover the answers to that question in the things that they teach them and us today. So go back to Alma 32 and let's start with verse 1. Having prayed for all that they would need back in chapter 31, all the comfort and strength and wisdom and power and success, and having been filled with the Holy Ghost to grant them all of those much-needed gifts, they go forth. They begin to preach the word of God unto the people, entering into their synagogues and their houses, even preaching the word in their streets. So from the most public to the most private and everything in between, anywhere they could go, they preached. And after much labor among them, they began to have success. This did not come easily. But it did come among the poor class of people. Their success was specific to them, those who were cast out of the synagogues because of the coarseness of their apparel. Remember what we saw about the Ramiumptum? Back in 3128, those who climbed the holy stand, those that filled the synagogue, were known for their costly apparel, their ringlets and bracelets and ornaments of gold, all their precious things that they ornamented themselves with. After all, if they're going to claim that they're better than their brethren, then they're going to need to look the part, right? And if you allow these kinds of people with coarse apparel to come in and share the holy stand with everybody else to fill the synagogue, talk about bringing down the average, right? Talk about giving the lie to these promises of prosperity. Talk about shattering the sense of superiority these Ormites would have had. Well, we can't have you come in and make the rest of us look like maybe we aren't better than everybody else after all. 
In fact, let's keep you outside. Then the differences really would be stark. There's a fascinating theology, if you want to call it that, that's rising in popularity in America as we speak. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's often taught by the most successful or most visible of televangelists. And it is exactly what it sounds like, a prosperity gospel. Have faith in God and he'll make you rich. Turn to him spiritually and he will reward you temporally. And often the size of the congregation or the size of the building that they meet in. Some have converted old NBA stadiums into churches for this cause. Sometimes it's the wealth of the pastor himself. All of these things are evidences that, see, God really does bless us. I sometimes worry that some of that even creeps into LDS culture. And that the reason so many Latter-day Saints are so heavily in debt or guilty of such conspicuous consumption, that it's that kind of this spiritual version of keeping up with the Joneses. The richer I am, the more righteous I look. I mean, poverty would be such a sign of non-blessedness. So I need to avoid coarse apparel at all costs. Costs being the operative term. So you see what these poor Zoramites are up against? Verse 3, they were not permitted to enter into their synagogues to worship God. They were esteemed as filthiness. Therefore they were poor, yea, they were esteemed by their brethren as dross, the part that's supposed to be skimmed off or cast out, burned away, so that only undefiled purity remains. Therefore they were poor as to the things of the world, and also they were poor in heart. The prosperity gospel would equate those two things, even though in reality the opposite is so often true. So often those who are poor as to the things of the world are rich as to the things of the Spirit. I think that helps explain a little what they call the shift of the center of gravity of Christianity towards the global south. South America, Africa, the Philippines, places that are typically richer in spiritual things than in temporal things. Poor in spirit in a good way, in terms of being humble and open, relying on God instead of the size of their bank account. Now Alma is teaching them in verse 4, a great multitude of them come, those that were poor in heart because of their poverty as to the things of the world. And this is what they say to Alma in verse 5. One who was the foremost among them said unto him, Behold, what shall these my brethren do? For they are despised of all men because of their poverty, yea, and more especially by our priests. For they have cast us out of our synagogues, which we have labored abundantly to build with our own hands. And they have cast us out because of our exceeding poverty. And we have no place to worship our God. And behold, what shall we do? So it's not just the fellow people that were looking down upon them. It was the priests that looked down upon them most of all. Again, these people give the lie to their prosperity gospel. They puncture their sense of superiority. As far as priestcraft is concerned, they can contribute very little. So let's get rid of the dross. So only the, the high rollers, the big spenders will come to church. That'll fill the plate as we pass it around. We hate to have the wealthy have to question the chosenness of this people or second guess what they're spending all their money on. Costly apparel doesn't always feel quite as comfortable when those in coarse apparel are all around you. I even wonder if this foremost brother struggled with a little bit of pride of his own. I mean, in a society this stratified and with such a strong sense of superiority among the wealthiest, I can understand why there would be some aspirations to social mobility. Because notice how he begins it. What shall these my brethren do? They are despised because of their poverty. 
See, it even seems like he's distancing himself from them just a little. I mean, yes, they're my brethren. Yes, I'm one of them. But I am the foremost among them. I'm the best of the worst. I'm the richest of the poor. I'm the biggest of the small fish. Who knows? But by the end, I am grateful that he's fully acknowledged where he stands. It's no longer they and their. It's we and our. They've cast us out because of our exceeding poverty. We don't have anywhere to go. Even though we built the synagogue ourselves, sad that throughout so much of Christian history, those that literally built the cathedrals felt less welcome than others in entering them. And with the uniformity and requirements of worship we saw back in chapter 31, they have this sense that we're cut off from God. We cannot worship him because we're not allowed into our own synagogues. And so he asks on their behalf, what shall we do? I love the humility in that question. Help us. What are we supposed to do in our circumstance? In fact, when John the Baptist was crying repentance, this is in Luke chapter 3, in three different verses, various segments of his audience, when he's crying repentance, respond with, what shall we do? We do have a desire to change. You've pricked our hearts. What do we do now? The publicans asked it. The soldiers asked it. John, what do we do from here? How do we make the kinds of changes you're describing? When Peter preaches his message in Acts chapter 2, crying repentance to the Jews that had crucified Jesus. And what do they ask? Men and brethren, what shall we do? I love this sense of m building momentum. We want to go somewhere. We've, you've awakened us to that. But give us direction. I want to push the gas pedal. Will you please help me know where to turn the wheel? What Alma does next is amazing. Verse 6, when Alma heard this, he turned him about, his face immediately towards him. You see what he just did? He'd been teaching this large mixed audience. This great multitude of the poor comes to him. Now there seems to be kind of two different bodies. Alma trying to preach what he thought was his target audience. Perhaps a sense of, if I can convert the leaders, then the followers will come aboard. But in this moment he realizes, wait a minute. This isn't my intended audience. This one is. Because these people are not as prepared for the word as these ones are. And he literally turns his back on the people he started teaching so that he can face immediately the people that are ready for his word. He beheld them with great joy. He beheld that their afflictions had truly humbled them and that they were in a preparation to hear the word. The pride and wealth of one group prevented them from accepting the word, and the humility and afflictions of this other group prepared them to receive it. I remember sometimes wanting to tract in gated communities on my mission, but we couldn't get in unless we knew a member in that community that would give us the code or allow us to come in when we hit the intercom. We literally were locked out. And in my mind, it was such a fascinating metaphor. What a tragedy that their wealth was literally keeping messengers with the restored gospel out of their lives. We had no access to them. Well, among the poor, they were in a preparation to hear the word. So in 7, Alma says no more to the other multitude. This is when a missionary realizes that the person he's been teaching is not progressing at all. There really isn't a sincere desire to learn. And in one of the most difficult things that a missionary often has to do, they turn from them in search of people that are more prepared. Not to give up on that person permanently, of course, but in hopes that time and circumstances will change 
and that eventually they'll be prepared for the word as well. Now, because Alma 32 is such a famous chapter in the Book of Mormon, and most people are familiar with Alma's analogy of the seed, I want to start with that analogy here. Because what's happening is the Lord has been preparing the soil of these future saints. In fact, if we superimpose this story over the parable of the sower that Jesus teaches, what kind of soil characterized the people that would climb the Ramiumptum and talk about how much better they were than others around them? This would be seeds sown among thorns. The soil had great potential. It was fertile. It, a lot was growing there. Unfortunately, it wasn't good growth. It was the growth of weeds, thorns that were choking out the seed that the sower had planted. Jesus taught the parable of the sower in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and not only taught the parable, but also explained its meaning to the apostles. And if you combine those three accounts, this is what the thorns represented. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lusts of other things, and the pleasures of this life. Sound like the people who climbed the Ramiumptum? Sound like the people in the great and spacious building? Sound like King Noah's court? Sound like Korahor or anybody in the order of the Nehors? They could have done so much. The soil was good, but all their potential spiritual growth was being choked out as the strength of that soil was being diverted to lesser things. And what do you have to do in soil like that? You have to weed. You have to pull out things that were never meant to be there. Distractions and diversions to the strength that should be going to better things. That's what's been happening here. Again, that phrase in verse 6, their afflictions had truly humbled them. Their afflictions. God had been raking or hoeing, pulling out of these people the opportunity to be choked by the deceitfulness of riches or the pleasures of this life. Alma saw this as a good thing. In verse 7, he cried unto those whom he beheld who were truly penitent. In 8, he tells them, I behold that ye are lowly in heart, and if so, blessed are ye. Your peers may be looking down on you. I look up to you. They may think of you as cursed, as unchosen. I consider you blessed. The brother just said, we're cast out of our synagogues. We can't worship our God. But I say to you, verse 10, do you suppose you cannot worship God, save it be in your synagogues only? Do you suppose you can only worship God once a week? That's become culture here. I get it. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, verse 12, it is well that ye are cast out of your synagogues. You little seeds, consider yourselves blessed that you have been uprooted and transplanted into other soil without so many distracting or diverting weeds, thorns that are choking your possibility of growth. It's so ironic. It's a good thing you can't go to church, he's saying to them. Have any of you felt that way during this time of COVID-19? Have you seen any good come of having been cast out of your synagogue because of quarantining? Has it prepared your soil in any way to grow in better directions forcing you to sink your own tap roots a little bit deeper instead of perhaps leaching off of the sources of living water that other people have developed. A lot of good can come from being cast out of the synagogue. Good, at least, if it makes you humble. You see in verse 12, that you may be humble, that you may learn wisdom, for it is necessary that you should learn wisdom. It is because that you are cast out, that you are despised of your brethren, 
because of your exceeding poverty, that ye are brought to a lowliness of heart, for ye are necessarily brought to be humble. We talked about this back in Alma chapter 5, when he asked the people of Zarahemla, have ye been stripped of pride? Has someone come and pantsed you? Have they pulled the pride right off of you? Stripped you of it? Have you been humiliated? Or, better, have you chosen to be humble? Again, President Benson's famous statement, God will have a humble people. You can choose to be humble or you can be compelled to be humble. Stripped of pride or take it off yourself. Be humiliated or become humble. You see what the Lord is doing to break up this soil? He's uprooted and transplanted you, pulled you out of the synagogue, and he's broken up the soil through your afflictions, through your trials. That's why you're in a preparation to hear the word, because God has been working on your soil. Notice what he says in 13. Because ye are compelled to be humble, blessed are ye. For a man sometimes, there's the catch, sometimes if he's compelled to be humble, he seeketh repentance, as opposed to those who humble themselves, who always seek repentance. But however you seek repentance, notice the next phrase, and now surely whosoever repenteth shall find mercy. I love the difference there. Compelled humility sometimes leads to repentance, but sincere repentance surely leads to mercy and forgiveness. And if you find mercy and endure to the end, you shall be saved. That's a surely rather than a sometimes also. So then in verse 14, if compelled humility is a good thing, then chosen humility is even better. And it comes about because of the word. The word that teaches you of Jesus. The word that elevates his pedestal to the point that we naturally kneel before it, recognizing our own difference and distance from God. 15, he that truly humbleth himself and repenteth of his sins and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed. Yea, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble because of their exceeding poverty. This actually helps explain what President Boyd K. Packer once said that there is more equality in our trials than we realize, and that sometimes the most difficult trial is the apparent absence of any. Wait, what? The hardest trial is to not have any trials? Well, sign me up for that one, right? But think about it. If the purpose of life is to come to know God, and trials remind us of our dependence on Him, then trials are actually moving us forward towards the goal of our mortal existence. Whereas wealth often breeds complacency or an independence. Who needs God? I've got everything that I need. And that sense of self-sufficiency or complacency interferes with the purpose of our life, coming to know and rely upon God. So if difficult circumstances often compel me to look to God, they bring me to my knees, then it sounds like President Packer was right. How do we choose to go to our knees when circumstances are not compelling us to go there? How do we put our trust in God when there's plenty of flesh on our arm in which to place some trust? Now, he's not saying they're all that way. If you skip over to verse 25, he, he admits that. I do not mean that ye all of you have been compelled to humble yourselves. I verily believe that there are some among you who would humble themselves, let them be in whatsoever circumstances they might. There are those who choose to kneel, even without circumstances bringing them to their knees. People who are choosing humility without needing to be humbled. 
back in verse 16, those are the most blessed of all. Blessed are they who humble themselves without being compelled to be humble. Just good, rich, deep topsoil that doesn't have to be raked and hoed and broken up and fertilized. All those great verbs from Jacob 5. It doesn't need to be digged and dunged and everything else. It's just ready for planting. In other words, Alma continues, Blessed is he that believeth in the word of God and is baptized without stubbornness of heart. And don't limit yourself to baptism there. Those that serve without stubbornness, that study scripture without stubbornness, that attend the temple without stubbornness. Remember section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you have to be compelled in all things, the same as a slothful and not a wise servant. These people were not slothful. They couldn't afford to be. They weren't unwise. Remember the wisdom they learned back in verse 12 because of their humility? This was soft clay. It could be molded and shaped. These were not hard or stubborn hearts that would need to be broken before they could be refashioned. They were turning their own soil. They didn't have to be plowed. And as a result, they didn't have to be brought to know the word or compelled to know before they would believe. Now with that phrase at the end of verse 16, we start to see something that's going to occupy the rest of the chapter. The idea of knowing versus believing, or in this phrase, to be compelled to know. We've talked about compelled to be humble. Well, what does it mean to be compelled to know? It's interesting that knowledge can be compulsive. That is, I can force knowledge upon you. That's kind of what proof does, right? Once something is proven, then I, I, I have to acknowledge it, right? I've been forced into that acceptance. That's what Korahor was after. Prove it to me. Show me a sign. I will not believe by choice. I can only believe by compulsion. We talked last time about epistemology. How do we know what we know? We'll see a lot more of that in Alma chapter 32. Well, this is a compelled epistemology. You have to believe. It's been forced upon you. That doesn't say anything about the individual, right? That's the difference between those who are blessed on a higher level because they've chosen to be humble versus those whose circumstances have forced them into a humble posture. Well, to choose to believe versus being compelled to believe because signs have forced it upon you, that doesn't tell me anything about you at all. You had no choice in the matter. Isn't that the story of Doubting Thomas? The other apostles have seen the risen Lord, and they tell Thomas about it. He wants proof. Until I've seen for myself, put my finger into the prints of the nails, and thrust my hands into his side, I will not believe. Well, when the risen Lord comes and shows himself to Thomas, he says, fine, have it your way. Be compelled to believe with proof that makes it impossible not to believe. Thrust your hand into my side. But he says to him, be not faithless, but believing. Again, a sense of your way of knowing, Thomas, is inferior to others' ways of knowing. More blessed are those who choose to believe without being compelled to know. That's what he says to him. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Theirs is a superior epistemology, spiritually speaking. Interesting that God even wants to preserve agency in the epistemological realm, in the realm of knowledge, because that gives us room to work, to make decisions, to exercise agency, to decide what we want to do or who we want to become. And when knowledge is compelled, then our accountability goes up as well. You have to know. 
It's been forced upon you. You've got to live up to this. That's why asking for a sign was actually a bad idea on the part of Korihor. It raised his accountability, but it didn't change his heart because he never chose to. That knowledge was forced upon him. He was compelled to know because he demanded a sign that would force it upon him. So back to the plant analogy. You've been uprooted and transplanted to get better soil. You're no longer among the thorns. Your afflictions and hardships have turned that soil. So you're not on rocky ground either. See what the Lord is trying to do. The good gardener is trying to move them further and further away along this spectrum, away from wayside soil that has no chance to receive the word. Turn the soil, that's rocky ground. Weed and uproot, that's thorny ground. Trying to get us all onto this side of the spectrum where the soil is good and ready for growth. But notice it's growth that God is after, not just the final product. Otherwise, you can like today, we can go to the nursery and buy a plant that's already grown, bring it home, and then plant it. Saves a ton of time, right? But if you're after growth instead of the final greenery, then that defeats the purpose of the whole thing. So forcing belief upon someone, compelling someone to know, that's buying the plant that's already grown and then sticking it into the soil. Haven't learned a thing about the soil yet. Haven't learned anything about the seed, anything about the plant. It's already there. It defeats the purpose of what we're seeing here. That's why in 17, he goes after that sign element that we saw in Korahor. There are many who do say, if thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, then we shall know of a surety. Then we shall believe. So Alma's remembering his experience with Korahor there. But then he asks in verse 18, wait, is this faith? I say unto you, nay, for if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe, for he knoweth it. Again, there was no growth in the plant. It was just an already grown plant that you stuck in the ground. Nothing changed in Korahor's soul because nothing happened in his soil. Remember he said, oh, I knew it all along. Isn't that fascinating? I had knowledge, but I lacked faith because faith is a condition of the heart, whereas knowledge is simply a condition of the mind. And God wants both. If we sidestep faith, if we short circuit the process, and I just want to jump straight to knowledge, I just want to know I want mental acknowledgement. I see that all the time with people who come in going through faith crisis. And they just want to get to this place of surety, of knowledge. Answer all my questions, resolve all my concerns, prove everything. It's like they've drawn a line across the neck and say, only speak above that line. Only talk to my head. I want rational, empirical proof. People don't tend to ask for supernatural signs, but they sure ask for rational, empirical signs all the time. I don't want to have to merely believe. Merely? Again, Alma seems to be suggesting that belief in some ways is even higher than knowledge because there's a choice there. Just like chosen humility is better than compelled humility. Chosen belief, faith, is superior, more blessed than compelled knowledge. Even when they demand reasons, I always quote to them that great verse in 1 Peter, to be ready to give to everyone that asketh thee a reason for the hope that is in thee. But catch the difference. You want reason, I get it. Neck up conversation. But at the end of the day, I'll give you the reason for the hope that is in me. It's still hope. It's still faith. It's still belief. There is such divine restraint on the part of God to allow that space to exist. 
Sure, he could stick fully grown trees in every plot of ground. He doesn't. He scatters seeds so that we can learn something about our soil through the process. So we can learn something about seeds through the process. So we can learn something about the sower himself through the process. In your quest for perfect knowledge, which is not a bad quest to be on, have patience and faith through the process of growth because it's growth that God is after. Remember Jesus' question, will he find faith upon the earth? He didn't ask, will he find perfect knowledge? Because he could have provided it. Sign seeking is just Satan's temptation number two, right? Jump off the temple and God will send the angels for this amazing save before you hit the ground. Won't even dash your foot against a stone and the world will know that you're the son of God. Isn't that what you want? To which Jesus basically responds, well, ultimately, yes. But before they know I'm the Son of God, I need to give them time and space to simply believe that I am. I need to give them chances to exercise faith before perfect knowledge comes to put the stage of faith at an end. Again, in verse 19, the heightened accountability that knowledge brings, how much more cursed is he that knoweth the will of God and doeth it not than he that only believeth or only hath cause to believe and falleth into transgression. Either way, we're going to be imperfect. We will not do God's will. We will fall into transgression. But sinning against belief, there's a lot more mercy there than sinning against perfect knowledge. So perhaps he's lengthening things, giving us time, like Alma taught back in chapter 12, to allow our faith to grow into knowledge simultaneously with allowing our works to grow into real reconciled wills. Faith growing into knowledge on one side, deeds developing disposition on the other. And both of those things take time. And if the one quickly outpaces, outdistances the other. It's like the branches outgrowing the roots in Jacob 5. That leads to a dead tree too. Let patience have her perfect work, James says. Let belief grow into knowledge through faith and let righteous acts grow into righteous reflexes through our works. Now in 21, he really gets to what he wants to talk about. As I said concerning faith, this is what we want to spend our time on. Faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Those two are not synonymous. Faith can lead to perfect knowledge, but once you have perfect knowledge, you no longer have faith. We'll see this taught again in Ether chapter 3 with the brother of Jared. If you have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. This hope element as opposed to unavoidable acknowledgement. Again, we get to see the heart here what it wants, what it hopes for, as opposed to simply an enforced epistemology of the mind, acquiescence in the face of proof, rather than hope in the face of uncertainty. In 22, when he says, I say unto you, and I would that you should remember that God is merciful unto all who believe on his name. I love the word believe there. Therefore he desireth in the first place that ye should believe. Yea, even on his word. The first thing God wants is our belief, not our acknowledgement, not our acquiescence, not our perfect knowledge. He wants our belief in the first place. 
because it says something about our heart. It says something about our soil. Sadly, the word believe seems to have taken a hit in church culture. It seems like such a far cry from real knowledge. In our fast and testimony meetings, what do we say? I know, I know, I know. And if somebody says, I believe, it almost is like, he or she doesn't know, huh? Hmm. Where's your faith? Well, actually, it's the other way around. Perhaps if all we ever say is, I know, I know, I know, maybe that's a time to ask, well, but where is your faith? If your faith has grown into perfect knowledge, that's one thing. That's a wonderful thing. But if you're claiming perfect knowledge, if that's just the word you use as a way to sidestep or short circuit the process of faith and hope growing into real knowledge, then we've missed something. I was doing research a few years ago on the earliest days of the church, and I was fascinated to see in a newspaper article somebody talk about these Mormon missionaries that had come into town. And they talked about some of the things they taught, but the newspaper article was most fascinated by this one word that the Latter-day Saint missionaries seemed to use a lot. The word was know, K-N-O-W. They said, yeah, the Mormon missionaries, they say they know these things are true. And that was so different from what the newspaper writer had expected that it stood out to him. It was like, they didn't say they believed. They didn't say they had faith. They said they knew. He even said, and that's a fair example of the Mormon slang. That's what he called it, the Mormon slang. Now, in defense of those early missionaries, I don't think it was just slang to them. Nor is it always slang when people say it in fast and testimony meeting. We can say we know, though we do say it using a different epistemological model than the narrowly contracted, confined scientific empiricism that Korahor was after, like we talked about last week. We can say we know, that we know by the witness of the Holy Ghost. That's what Alma does when he clarifies his own testimony back in Alma chapter 5. I know these things for myself, for I have fasted and prayed many days. The Holy Ghost has borne witness to my soul. Again, that's a different epistemological model than the kind of physical proofs that Korahor was asking for. Remember the blind scientists mixing paint color by touch and smell from Gulliver's Travels. We can't run this experiment with those senses. We'll never get measurements with those specific measuring rods. Spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. But once spiritually discerned, we can say that spiritually speaking, we do know. So it's not just Mormon slang. But sometimes, isn't it? Do we sometimes just say or hear people say, I know, I know, I know, without the faith and the hope that we were supposed to develop on the way to that knowledge? I think in a way we need to resurrect, redeem the word believe in the Latter-day Saint vocabulary. Because as Alma says here, God is merciful unto all who believe on his name. So in the first place, believe, work on faith, develop hope, want to believe, he'll say in a moment. And if you're not even there yet, then want to want to. In a beautiful talk that Elder Holland gave years ago called, Lord, I believe, there was his key verb. He talked about a young boy, 14 years old, I think, who met Elder Holland and said, Elder Holland, I don't think I can say yet that I know the church is true, but I do believe it. 
And it was so apologetic, like, ah, I, I don't have the right vocabulary word yet. This is all I'm at. This is my level. And Elder Holland said that I hugged that boy until his eyes bulged out. I told him with all the fervor of my soul that belief is a precious word, an even more precious act, and he need never apologize for, quote, only believing, unquote. You see the beauty of belief on the way towards knowledge, but before it gets there, that's what allows faith to flourish and to function. That's the growth element we're talking about instead of just transplanting trees. Some people have argued that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is actually what allows faith to function. It's what clears out space, makes room for faith to develop. Now let me say something about this briefly. Because I remember hearing from one of the leaders of the Church Correlation Department a few years ago. Correlation Department is the group of doctrinal experts that make sure that there is a uniform and clear doctrine throughout the church in its curriculum and its teachings and so on. We don't want to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. And Correlation helps guard against that. But this leader pointed out that the brethren were a little concerned about the glorification of doubt that was slowly creeping into certain elements of the church. Now, this is a fine line we need to walk. So let's see if we can walk it together. On the one hand, we would never want people to feel like their questions are unwelcome. If any of you lack wisdom, any of you, let him ask of God, James says. It's the verse that started the whole restoration, right? Questions are welcome. You don't have to know everything. In fact, the ninth article of faith lets us know that we don't know everything yet. There is yet much to be revealed, many great and important things that we don't know yet. Expect questions. God hasn't told us everything yet. That's okay. That's, that's exciting, actually. Revelations yet to come. So we don't want to swing the pendulum so far in that direction to say, oh, no, no, doubt is unwelcome. Questions not allowed. No, questions are always allowed. Bring them, please. But do we swing the pendulum so far in that direction that we start reveling in doubt, almost trying to avoid answers or testimony, where not only I know is a dirty word, but even I believe sounds a little too dogmatic. And then this leader pointed out something that I'd never noticed before. He said, our only concern with this subtle glorification of doubt is that in the scriptures, doubt is never mentioned positively. When Peter walks on the water and then starts to sink, and Jesus says, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Wherefore means why, right? So why would you doubt, Peter? You were doing it. After Jesus curses the fig tree, he says to the apostles, if ye have faith and doubt not, you'll not only do this, but da 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 When Peter is sent to Cornelius in the book of Acts, he's told to go with them, doubting nothing. One of the clearest is in section six of the Doctrine and Covenants. Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. This leader was right. In the scriptures, doubt is never glorified. Instead, whenever the Lord talks about it, he tells us not to do it. So now, wait a minute. I'm not supposed to have questions? No, no, no. You're not supposed to have doubts. Wait, what? Isn't that the same thing? What about the things I just don't know? Or even the things I don't believe? Areas where my faith is lacking or my testimony is weak? Is doubt really not allowed in the church? Honestly, I think much of this is a semantic issue, the word that we use. And the more that I've studied it, I realize that whenever the Lord is 
condemning doubt. It's doubt as a verb. He doesn't use doubt as a noun. We do. We talk about, I have my doubts. And we use it almost like it's synonymous with questions. Places of uncertainty in our faith. I don't know about this part of church history. Or I always wondered about this. This part doesn't make sense to me. Or this, I just don't understand. And we label all of those our doubts. That's doubts in the plural and their nouns. Propositional doubt. Things I can't check off the box and say, yes, I believe that. But in the scriptures, it's always doubt as a verb that Jesus condemns. Doubt not, but be believing. Wherefore couldst thou doubt? He's not talking about questions or uncertainties. Bring those to him. Come and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Let's talk about those things. Let's work on those. This is a great opportunity for you to develop faith as your uncertainty becomes certainty, as your question marks become exclamation points. Bring them, please. So the Lord isn't condemning questions, doubts, plural, as in propositions. He's condemning doubt as a verb or as a singular noun, just doubt in general, because that's something that then kind of creeps into us and becomes how we view things. It becomes our attitude. See, shift from propositional doubt to attitudinal doubt. What I mean by that is instead of here's my list of questions, keep the list, but rather here's my attitude of doubt. That's the part that the Lord wants to help us grow out of. That's why in section 90 of the Doctrine and Covenants, he says, search diligently. I know there's questions. <laughs> Bring them. So search diligently. Pray always. Use both the head. That's the search diligently part. Use the heart. That's the pray always part. Bring your questions. Come and talk about these things. The conversations you have with God over these things will be life-changing. But then he adds this phrase. Search diligently. Pray always. And be believing. See, that's attitude. He's not saying just, just check out all the boxes even if you don't know. No, but have an attitude where those boxes will eventually be checked. That's why I label those questions the third part of the ninth article of faith. Things that God has yet to reveal. But I believe he will reveal them. That's my attitude. That's my faith. I think sometimes we picture kind of this box. And there's a line somewhere in the middle that separates the things that we know. Kind of the weighty parts of our testimony that sink down to the bottom. And this is my bedrock foundational belief. My, my knowledge. My testimony. Everything above it. That line is, that's my doubts. I, I just, I don't know that stuff. So faith below the line and doubt above the line. But again, God acknowledges there are things I have not yet told you. That third element of the ninth article of faith is key. It's what gives us room to grow and develop in our faith and our hope. Otherwise, we would be compelled to know. And with that comes great accountability. He wants to give us time to grow. This is the mental version of what Alma taught back in chapter 32. The space, the time being prolonged, the gap that opens up between the fall and the atonement, between the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit of the tree of life. It's what makes this a preparatory state. And that third part of the ninth article of faith, God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's what that space is. That space allows me to exercise faith. That's the good of uncertainty. So don't label that doubt. If you want to stick with our box diagram, 
Doubt is not all that empty space up above. Doubt and faith are actually what are playing tug of war along the line itself that separates our certainties from our uncertainties. You see, the certainties and uncertainties are all those propositional things. Here's the stuff that I can check the boxes on. And here, up here are the things that I can't. But faith is what pushes the line upward. Faith is trusting that God will yet reveal those things. Whereas doubt is what brings the line downward. Doubt as an attitude where I don't believe that God will ever reveal those things. I don't think they can be known. That was Korahor for you. You cannot know of things to come. You cannot know these things. How do you know? So many epistemological questions and accusations that Korahor threw in Alma's face. That attitudinal doubt pushes the line down, increasing the space of uncertainty and almost gobbling up the things that were certain to you before. That's what happens with faith loss. We forget what we used to know. And I mean that actively, not passively. We choose to forget. We eliminate those things that we once knew. Doubt has moved the line down. God doesn't reveal. We cannot know. Faith moves the line up. God does reveal. He will yet reveal. I can know. And the further my faith pushes that line upward, the more things will move from what God has not yet revealed above the line to what he is now revealing to me, what's on that line, to what he already has revealed to me, which is what's below that line. Those are the three areas of the ninth article of faith. Revelations future, revelations present, and revelations past. Hope fills the top section. Faith fills the middle on that line. And knowledge fills the bottom section. That's part of the process of growing up in God, coming to know by having time to believe. Now, from this moment on, and for the rest of this chapter, Alma is going to help them in this process of moving the line of faith so that hopes can become beliefs and eventually become perfectly known truths. And ironically, he's going to put it in terms of an experiment. It's what an empiricist would want, right? That's what a Korahor would demand. Show me a sign. So Alma's like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll see your demand. But it has to be done in the right way. We will use the scientific method, but not as so narrowly defined by rational empiricism. There has to be room for a non-rational, not to say irrational. That's what they typically want to do. That's why they mock, like we talked about last time. They want to make all the non-rational look irrational, as if that's the only other option to rationality. So much of life is non-rational. Think beauty. Think love. So much of humanity. That's why we talk about the sciences and the humanities. The sciences want to confine themselves to pure rationalism. The humanities allow themselves to grapple with the non-rational. But a narrowly defined or confined scientism wants to say, nope, if it's not rational, then it's irrational and we will mock it and make you feel like an idiot. So in this particular experiment, we need to make room for the non-rational. We could call it the super-rational, the above reason alone, where so many of the humanities dwell, so much of what makes us human. Go try to have a personal relationship with someone based on rationalism alone. Good luck in that marriage.
But like the scientific method typically demands, this experiment will be verifiable. It will be repeatable. This experiment has proven successful throughout history, across cultures, through an incredibly wide variety of people. The experiment works if we will do it the way the Lord has explained it. And like so much of the scientific method, there is an element of observation. How have people received testimonies in the past? The scriptures are our opportunity to learn that. There is a hypothesis, some sort of con conjecture, saying based on the observations that we've made, what I see in scripture, what I've experienced in my own life, that if I do these things, then truth can be confirmed to my soul. There is a prediction, some set of expected consequences, that if I do these things based upon my hypothesis, then this should be the result. And then there's the experiment. Try it then. See. It's that attitude of faith that expects the line to move. God will reveal truth to me. He'll confirm it to my soul through the power of the Holy Ghost. So let's take this experiment. He calls it that in verse 27. But start in verse 23. God imparts his word by angels unto men. Not only men, but women also. And not only men and women, but little children do have words given unto them many times which confound the wise and the learned. In other words, this experiment that I'm about to explain is open to all. This is part of that repeatability or verifiability. It's open to anyone, men, women, children. You don't have to be the wise and the learned even. You don't need sophisticated equipment. You will not be limited by the coarseness of your apparel, your lack of opportunities for learning. This is an experiment open to all. In 26, he adds, Now, as I said concerning faith, that it is not a perfect knowledge, even so it is with my words. You cannot know of their surety at first unto perfection any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. That's what makes this an experiment instead of an already proven fact. That's why we're going to plant a seed instead of simply transplant an already grown tree. And like we said earlier, the Lord wants growth, not just greenery. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth not just a bunch of checked boxes that everyone has acknowledged belief. It takes faith, not perfect knowledge, to love someone that seems undeserving of that love. It takes faith, not perfect knowledge, to give with no hopes of return. It takes faith, not perfect knowledge, to engage in acts of selfless sacrifice. It takes faith, not perfect knowledge, to become like Jesus. Remember what James says, the devils believe and tremble. They know, but their perfect knowledge never translated into faith. That principle of action, of power. So quit demanding your signs and quit trying to jump ahead to perfect knowledge. Let patience have her perfect work. Let faith grow into perfect knowledge. And here's how we'll do it. 27. First thing, awake and arouse your faculties. This discovery is not going to come to a casual dabbler. We need serious scientists for this particular experiment. Awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words. And exercise, there's another active word, right? Exercise. It's going to take work on our part. Maybe that's another reason that signs are so tempting, because it gets us to what we thought was the destination through a shortcut. 
We took steroids instead of working out. We took pills instead of dieting. We bought a diploma online instead of actually going to school. Now, this particular experiment, the exercise is part of it. It's part of what produces the result at the end. I shake my head sometimes when people say, oh, the church isn't true. When it's the person who has stopped being true to the church, do they drive past a gym that they haven't been to in years and say, oh, the gym just isn't true? Well, it is for everybody that's in there actually exercising. Try the experiment. Awake, arouse your faculties, exercise, and you'll see the difference that the gym can make. Here he asks us to exercise a particle of faith, just a particle. So he wants to take this to the atomic level. He can't think of anything smaller than that, just a particle of faith. Yea, even if you can no more than desire to believe, then let this desire work in you even until you believe in a manner that you can give place for a portion of my words. I love how easy Alma is trying to make the first step. It won't stay easy. This is exercise. This is awake and arouse your faculties, right? But to begin, just get off the couch, or at least want to. I actually had a conversation with a student this last semester. Awesome young woman, but really struggling in her faith and spirituality. She felt that she had fallen very far since her mission. And the worst part of it was, she didn't really seem to care much. She said she was staying in the church, partly because leaving it would devastate her family. But in a moment of pretty brutal honesty, she said, and part of it, I'm just too lazy to even leave. So we talked about this verse, and she asked the most honest question, what if you don't even have that desire yet? What if a particle of faith is still more than what I can muster. Is there anything smaller than a particle? Is there like an electron of faith? Is there like a quark of faith? And we wrestled with that for a while. Knowing that this young woman was an adventurer, an outdoors woman, I asked her if she did much biking, and she does. So we talked about how many gears are on a bike, and that if you're starting from zero, especially if you're on an uphill incline, what gear do you start? And typically we start in the lowest possible gear. A lot of movement on the legs without a lot of movement on the road. Why? Because it makes it so much easier. Yes, I'm moving my legs a lot, but not with a lot of force behind them. That low gear allows me to just start moving, barely. But once I start moving, then I can shift up, go to the next higher gear, a little more muscle than before, but not a ton. And I'm making a little bit more progress than I was before. And if I continue that momentum and shift up again, then it's this process of adding a little more effort as time goes on and getting incredibly more results in the process. Well, this was making perfect sense to her. So then I asked her the important question, what is your lowest gear? That's going to be different for everybody. For some, the easiest thing they can do is pray. For others, that takes a lot of effort and focus. Some people can just jump right into scripture and go from zero to 60 and 2.5. Speaks their language. Others, it's like, whoa, I don't, I never understand what's going on in here. That is a high gear. And it's really hard just to plop the book open and dive in. Everyone's different. So I asked her, in your case, what is your absolute lowest gear? Something that takes barely any effort, hardly any desire. It almost comes automatically. But it does allow you to feel 
a particle of faith start to work within you, some inkling of God. And as she thought about it, she said, nature, just being outside. And I smiled and responded, isn't it generous of God to surround you with your lowest gear? In fact, I don't think you're alone in that one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 19. Isn't that what Alma was kind of getting at with Korahor? All of this denotes that there is a God. It's meant to just spark that particle of faith. Get the tiniest bit of momentum going as you're out in nature and just seeing something within you, some stirring of the soul, a sense of awe, a feeling of transcendence, of wonder. I then said to her, the next time you're out in nature and you start to feel some momentum, recognize that momentum for what it is that a desire is beginning to work in you. A particle of faith is present. But don't just acknowledge it. Try to build on that momentum and shift up a gear. What would your next one be? Is it time to pray yet? Maybe not. Maybe your second gear is simply gratitude for the creation that you see. You're in it, first of all. But something's starting to stir. Well, make it more of a conscious, mindful acknowledgement of the beauty that you're seeing. Be in it. Occupy that space. Be mindful. Feel gratitude. Even if you're not ready to actually express it yet. Maybe that's the third gear. I don't know. But I challenged her. Brainstorm as many things as you possibly can of ways that you feel the Holy Ghost. Just get them as many out on paper as you possibly can. That's the first step. And then the second, see if you can rank them from easiest to hardest, from lowest gear to highest gear. It's almost like you're trying to build this spiritual bike and you have all kinds of gears. Just brainstorm as many as you can. Just gather as many gears as possible. Big ones, small ones, lots of teeth, fewer teeth, and then start assembling them in order. Once you've done some of that homework, the next time you're out on a bike ride, sense your momentum and then shift up. See what it feels like and then shift up again. You don't have to rush the process. Maybe you just spend it in the first couple of gears, but let it begin to work in you. Just start giving place for a portion of God's words. That's part of that clearing out the weeds or turning over the soil. Give place. Prepare the earth. If nothing else, suspend your disbelief for a moment. Entertain the possibility that this might be true. Yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Just make a little room for it. 28. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. Now if you give place, prepare the soil, that a seed may be planted in your heart, Behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, and as long as you don't cast it out by your unbelief, you can ensure that none of this happens by altering the conditions of your experiment. So don't cast it out by your unbelief. 
That's part of that giving place for it. Don't resist the Spirit of the Lord. Again, that's ruining the experiment. That's not allowing it to grow. I used to see that typically on the back row of a seminary class where you could really sense the Spirit enter a room to confirm truth and there'd be some on that back row that would just kind of start to squirm, uncomfortable, resisting the Spirit of the Lord. As long as you don't force that false conclusion by establishing false premises to begin with, then what will happen? Four things he mentions in verse 28 that coincidentally provide us with a beautiful mnemonic device to help us remember what the seed will do. It spells seed. It will swell, it will enlarge, it will enlighten, and it will be delicious. There's the S-E-E-D. The word will swell within our breasts. Remember what Alma said back in chapter 5? Your souls will expand, and with that increased lung capacity, you'll feel motivated to sing the song of redeeming love. Well, this will swell within your breast. When you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, it must needs be that this is a good seed or that the word is good for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. It beginneth to enlighten my understanding. You see the two body parts we've been seeing already, the mind and the heart. The enlarged soul is the heart. The enlightened understanding is the mind. He'll say it even more clearly at the end of verse 34. Your understanding doth begin to be enlightened and your mind doth begin to expand. Either way, it's this expansion. It's this growth. I love that about the truths of the gospel. They grow within me. It makes more sense. It's like my spirit straightens up to its full stature. My mind grabs a hold of some doctrine and it just keeps growing and things make more and more sense to me. This is how faith grows. And throughout the process, it is delicious to me. That's the fruit of the tree of life, right? Sweet above all that is sweet. The most delicious above any other fruit. Just the joy that it brings. How could I keep from singing? Verse 29, would not this increase your faith? Of course it would. Things you've never felt. Thoughts you've never had. Changed tastes and desires. Purified appetites. A depth of understanding, a depth of thought, a depth of character. All of that is this expanded soul that the gospel brings. This is what increases our faith. But then he adds this at the end of 29. But it still hasn't grown to a perfect knowledge. We're still on the faith stage. You know something about the seed, but do you yet know all there is to know about the plant that is beginning to grow? Verse 30, Behold, as the seed swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, then you must needs say that the seed is good. For behold, it swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow. Those are your observations. This was your hypothesis. The prediction is now coming to pass. It's confirming your initial conjecture. Will not this strengthen your faith? Yea, it will strengthen your faith. For ye will say, I know that this is a good seed. For behold, it sprouteth and beginneth to grow. And now, behold, are ye sure that this is a good seed? I say unto you, yea, for every seed bringeth forth unto its own likeness. I love that. If the seed is the word, that's what he said back in 28. The primary song was close, but got it just a bit off. It, the primary song says, faith is like a little seed. No, the word is like a little seed. Faith is what allows it to grow. Or conversely, faith is what grows as it does. Faith growing into perfect knowledge. But if the seed is the word, 
And if we learn from John 1 that the word is Christ, then planting Christ in us, that's what Alma is trying to do for these antichrist Zoramites. It's the great question that Amulek will bring up again in 34. If the seed is Christ and it begins to grow within us and every seed bringeth forth unto its own likeness, that's one of the best evidences of the goodness and the truth of the seed. What likeness does it bring forth in me? Have you received his image in your countenance, Alma said in chapter 5? Have you experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Have you been spiritually begotten of God? What likeness is it bringing forth in you? To me, honestly, one of the greatest evidences of experimenting upon the words of Christ is the way that it makes you more like him. When I see a true Christian, I think, wow, that is a well-run experiment. That is a seed that has brought forth its own likeness. Jesus planted within us and then growing within us. No wonder our souls need to expand. No wonder our minds need to be enlightened. Because the soul of Christ, the mind of Christ, is so far beyond our own. We need to grow into it. We need to grow up in God. But I so often see this in senior missionaries, for example. I've served with many over the years. And they're some of the most celestial seedlings that I've ever seen. A lifetime of that seed bringing forth its own likeness. And that person is like Jesus. When you see someone who reminds you of the Savior, it's because the seed that they planted was good and true. And it swelled within them and it enlarged and enlightened them. It became delicious and they kept on eating. Such beautiful, convincing evidence. 32, if the seed grows, you know it's good. 33, because you tried the experiment and planted the seed and it swells and sprouts and grows, you must needs know that the seed is good. And now behold, is your knowledge perfect? Now back in 29, he said no. Yes, it would increase your faith, but no, it's still not perfect knowledge. But it still grows. It's still swelling, sprouting, beginning to grow. So what's he saying in 34? Is your knowledge perfect? Yay! So he's changed it. Yes, your knowledge is perfect, but notice this three-word phrase. Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing. So in that thing. I've sometimes heard ex-Mormons or anti-Mormons say, oh, there's that domino analogy that you get from the introduction of the Book of Mormon. That once you know the Book of Mormon is true, then you know that Joseph Smith is a true prophet, and you know that the church is restored, and on and on. But just that one thing, and boom, all the dominoes fall. Some want to push back against that say, well, it was a, a rather flimsy faith, but then you have all these other things hanging on that one good feeling you once had. I can see where they're coming from. That's why, in my opinion, it's important to get other witnesses of other things along the path. Don't, you don't have to only have to have one anchor point as you're climbing the mountain. And I love how specific Alma is here, that your knowledge is perfect in that thing. You'll still need faith for other things, as those things grow from faith to perfect knowledge. But at least you do have that one anchor, that bolt in the mountain, that you can clip into and feel safe. In that thing, now your faith is dormant. And this because you know. So he's still grappling with this difference between faith and perfect knowledge. And once faith becomes perfect knowledge, then it ceases to be faith. It's dormant.
If I'm free climbing, rock climbing, I need faith and focus and overcoming fear to free climb. But once I get to an anchor and clip in, then I can rest assured on that one. Now, I still want to move forward. I still have much of the cliff face yet to ascend. And for that, I'll still need faith and focus and no fear until I get to the next anchor point and clip in. That's part of this growing in faith. The third part of the ninth article of faith is me free climbing up into new directions, finding anchor points or crevices in the rock where I can sink a bolt. That's the second part of the ninth article of faith. Things God is now revealing to me. This is becoming strong. Faith is becoming dormant in this. It's becoming perfect knowledge. And the first part of the ninth article of faith, all that God has revealed, are all those anchor points below me in elevation with my rope threaded through every one of them as I continue climbing towards the top. Verse 35, Oh then, is not this real? I love that that's the word he chose. He didn't just say, is not this true? He says, is not this real? Yes, it's true too, but sometimes we want to limit truth to some kind of objective fact, some kind of empirically proven, measurable, scientific kind of a thing. But life, with all the humanities that are in it, is not just true, it's real. It's messy at times, it's ambiguous, it's not clear-cut. There's subjectivity there. There's experience. There's relationships. That's why this whole side of things, this whole area of human existence, has to be more than merely true. It has to be real. Roll up our sleeves and get dirt under the fingernails and just grapple with things and figure stuff out and rise and fall and rise again. I'm sorry if it doesn't seem as controlled an environment as the experiments in the pure scientific realm. But that's not where life is lived. I remember taking uh, AP physics in high school and learning all these rules and equations and things to figure out stuff. Always with the caveat, this is all how it works in a vacuum. With wind resistance and elevation changes and everything else, the final result may be a tiny bit off from what you actually see in this cold, clear, controlled, experiment or equation. That's not life. So to actually do it where it's real instead of where it's simply contrived and antiseptic, now it's going to be messy. Now the equations are going to be a lot harder. We're no longer just doing it on paper. We're doing it in real life. So I'm saying nothing to minimize the truth of the gospel or the truth inherent in this experiment, but I even prefer the word that Alma uses. It's more than true. It's real. It's light. It's good. It's discernible. You can see the difference. You can feel the difference. You might not be able to measure it in some kind of scale or spectrometer, but recognizing the light in someone's countenance, the goodness of their heart, those things can be spiritually discerned. That's what makes them discernible. But then he says this at the end of 35. Now behold, after you have tasted this light, is your knowledge perfect? Now we want to say, well, yeah, right? We, we said yes back in verse 34. Knowledge is perfect. But that was only knowledge in that thing, in the goodness of the seed. In 36, he answers his question, nay, your knowledge isn't perfect. So 
don't lay aside your faith. You're still going to need that. You've only exercised your faith to plant the seed that you might try the experiment to know if the seed was good. That was the thing in which their knowledge was perfect back in 34, right? Your knowledge is perfect in that thing. What thing? The seed. The word is good. But do I know everything about that word? Or better yet, what the results of living that word for my entire life will be? That's the difference Alma is getting at. You might have perfect knowledge in the seed, but still exercise faith because there's a tree a-coming. There's yet great growth to be had. That's what we're after. Don't stop with the good seed. Don't stop in testimony meeting and say, I know the church is true. Say, I know the church is true and I have faith in what it is helping me become. It's one thing to say, I know the gospel has been restored. Another thing to say, and I have faith that the gospel is restoring me to the kind of disciple of Jesus Christ I've always been intending to become or the kind of child of God that he's always expected of me. That's where I have faith still. Even God grapples with this. God has perfect knowledge, right? He is omniscient, but he has faith in us because we're still in that process of becoming. We're the unproven part, but he has faith in us. And our unprovenness, our potential for yet continued growth is what allows space for even God's faith to flourish taking nothing away from his perfect knowledge. It adds an element of faith. Same for us. So in 37, now let's talk about the tree. We have perfect knowledge of the seed. Let's talk about faith in the tree. Behold, as the tree beginneth to grow, ye will say, let us nourish it with great care. By the way, there seems to be a subtle shift in pronouns. Back at the end of 28, it was, it's delicious to me. It enlarges my soul. It enlightens my understanding. This is first person singular. I'm experimenting upon the word. I don't even know if it's true, but I want, I'm hoping. I desire to know and desire to believe. I'm exercising this particle of faith. But now that I know that the word is true, that Jesus is the Christ, then I'm never alone in my experiments again. I'm with him. So he and I nourish the tree together. How can it not be together? He's the seed. He's the tree. It's his love that is the fruit that grows on it. So let us nourish it with great care. We know it's worthy of it because we know that it's good and it's true and it's real. Let it get root. Let it grow up. Let it bring forth fruit unto us. If we nourish it with much care, it will do all of those things. You see how we've crossed the spectrum of the soils in the parable of the sower? Far from the wayside, their afflictions have pulled out the rocks, overturned the soil and the rocky ground. They've plucked out the thorns. Their poverty has kept them from concerns with the deceitfulness of riches or the cares of the world. But even in this good ground, where the seed has grown, that says everything that we needed to know about the seed. But now let's let it grow. Even in the parable, it talks about the seed bringing forth fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. That tends to be the case with good trees. They become more and more productive. 
as time goes on, if they're nourished with great care, if their roots continue to sink deep. On the other hand, verse 38, if we neglect the tree, if we take no thought for its nourishment, it won't get any root. And it's not the seed's fault. We knew it was good. It started growing. When the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away, and ye pluck it up and cast it out. That's back to the stony ground. That's the sun coming. That's scorching it because it doesn't have any root. In fact, in one of the accounts of the parable of the sower, it says that it has no root in itself. It's been leaching off someone else's taproot. Again, maybe it's good that you were transplanted from the synagogue. So you'd have to learn to grow on your own. Maybe it's good that we can't go to sacrament meeting. We can't go to church. I can't depend on other people's roots to bring me my living water. Time for some self-nourishment here. Again, 39, it's not the seed's fault. It's not because the seed wasn't good. We've had evidence of that. We have perfect knowledge of that. That's the irony of so many people who leave the church. They had a perfect knowledge of the seed's goodness, but they stopped nourishing it. No wonder that seed didn't bring forth its own likeness. They never became as Christ-like as the Lord intended them to become. It's not because the fruit isn't desirable. It's more desirable than anything, Lehi tells us. It's because your ground is barren. You will not nourish the tree. You cannot have the fruit. It's gardening in reverse. The Lord doesn't give up on any part of his vineyard. If he finds wayside or stony ground, he starts digging and dunging, right? If he finds a weed patch, then he starts to weed. And even on good ground, he's constantly nourishing and pruning and grafting and doing all those other things. Constantly coaxing the soil to his side of the spectrum. Meanwhile, the adversary is doing the opposite. He doesn't give up on any part of the vineyard either. Even those on good ground with significant growth, he wants to limit that growth. Minimize nourishment. Thwart the growth of roots. Then he'll start planting weeds. That's the wheat and the tares, right? An enemy has done this. Let's start sapping the strength of the soil. It's, it's already proven that it's good. And we knew the seed was. But let's divert that strength into other things. Once that starts happening and the growth really is inhibited, then let's start packing down the soil. Compacted earth. Introduce rocks of our own. Even if it ends up killing the weeds, we don't care. Our purpose was never introducing weeds for weeds' sake. It was to eliminate growth of good plants. And with compacted earth, before long, we can end up making this look like wayside, which was always our biggest hope to begin with. You see the tug of war between these two gardeners? Verse 40, If ye will not nourish the word, looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof. My knowledge is in the seed. My faith is in the fruit. That's the ultimate goal. What will the results of a lifetime of discipleship be. If we don't have that eye of faith, then we'll never pluck of the fruit of the tree. And here, really for the first time, we see just what kind of plant we've been growing. Usually, somebody just puts a seed in your hand, you probably have no idea what exactly this is going to become. Remember John says that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See what John's getting at with that? 
I know I'm a son of God now. I know I'm God's daughter. But I've got no idea what I'm going to grow up to become. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for them that love him. you got no idea what kind of plant this is intended to be. Well, here now that we know, it's the tree of life. Can you picture Lehi waking up from his dream? Excited for this realization? Wait, wait, wait. That's where this tree comes from? It's the word of God planted in good soil, nourished and nurtured by a loving father until it becomes the love of God manifest to all of his children. We've been growing trees of life this whole time. 41, if we will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow. How? By your faith, with great diligence, with patience. It's going to take belief. It's going to take work. It's going to take time. Looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root. And behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. Does that phrase ring any bells? Remember Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, talking about a well of water springing up unto everlasting life? The irony of this is that neither trees nor wells move. They're permanent. Trees don't get up and walk. Tolkien's Ents notwithstanding. Wells are there where you dug them. But the beauty of the well that Jesus talks about or the tree that we see here, those are portable because they're within us. I can have living water. I can have delicious fruit. I can have shade and shelter from the world's beating sun wherever I go because they're inside me now. In fact, they are me now. The seed has brought forth its own likeness. He sums it up in 42. Because of your diligence and your faith and your patience, those same attributes he mentioned earlier, with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you. There's that permanence, that portability. Behold, by and by, be patient, it'll come. Ye shall pluck the fruit thereof. And then echoing Lehi which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. Ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. All you poor Zoramites, in your coarse apparel, living hand to mouth, trying to feed your families, You'll never hunger or thirst again. You will feast and feast forever. Then, my brethren, then ye shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience. It's the third time he's repeated those three. You need them all. Faith without works is dead. There's faith and diligence. And let patience have her perfect work. It will take time. But if you'll offer those, the line will keep moving up. You'll keep ascending the mountain. And through long suffering and plenty of waiting, the tree will bring forth fruit unto you. And that fruit 
is the love of God. I testify of this tree. I know, and this is not just Mormon slang, I know the goodness and the truthfulness and the reality of the seed of God's Word. That's why I spend my lifetime in it. I am seeing evidences of the tree. As my soul expands, as my mind enlarges, as I become slowly a little more like Jesus, and that's where I keep my eye of faith. He is the perfect seed. He is the tree of life. He is the good gardener. And as we come unto him and nourish our faith in him, that faith will eventually become a perfect knowledge. For this is life eternal, that we might know God and his son. So try the experiment and reap the reward. There is no lab work in life that can compare to this one.